Acts chapter 2 this morning again. Acts chapter 2, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 4 onward, but let me open up my Bible and read the first couple verses just by way of reminder. Acts chapter 2, let me just read a couple verses at the beginning and then we'll hop in at verse 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Uh, We've been talking about God's definition, the true definition of success being God's presence with God's people for God's praise. And that's just this pattern we see repeated. We begin all the way at the beginning of the Bible in the garden and carry our way through and see this is what God is doing. This is what God will accomplish in the world. He will place his presence with his people for his praise. That's that's what our lives should be aimed toward. That's what our lives should be conformed to. This should be our definition of success. This should be our operational definition of success. We, we should be able to measure our investments in time and treasure and talents against this standard of success. Am I pursuing God's definition of success, God's presence with God's people for God's praise? And today I want to talk a little bit more about how that actually takes place in the life of a church, how God's presence connects to God's people for God's praise. Uh, just just a few observations from this text, and next week we'll go through a wild ride through the Old Testament, seeing all of the references to the Pentecost in the Old Testament, and I think you'll enjoy that, so I hope you'll come back next week. But this week, let's look at this text and see just five or six ways that the Lord is using his people and his presence, his spirit, to bring about his praise. The first thing is probably noteworthy is simply this consistent pattern we see here unfolding elsewhere in the Old and New Testament, and that is simply that the church is surrounded by lost people. The church is surrounded by lost people. You see in this text uh, a juxtaposition, a contrast between two groups of people. There's 120 followers of Jesus, and there are multitudes of what the text says are devout Jews in Jerusalem coming from all the nations. So you've got two groups of people. And if you're a visual thinker like I am, you can just imagine this small little white dot in a sea of black, this small little candle in an ocean of darkness. The picture here is of 120 brand new followers of Jesus surrounded by multitudes of people who are not followers of Jesus. Now, there's similarities with both groups. There's a lot of similarities with both groups. They're both Jews. The 120 In the upper room, they are Jews. The thousands and thousands and thousands in Jerusalem, they are Jews. They're both what we would think to be devout, meaning they're both attempting to obey what they believe the Bible has said, what the Old Testament has told them. 120 have met this man named Jesus, and they have come to believe that he's the Messiah. And the multitude has not met Jesus, has not understood that he is the Messiah So this first picture we see 
is of a tiny little church surrounded by a sea of people who are good people, but damned people. They're good damned people. Friends, that's just the way life is. Do you understand that, I think you probably understand this point, that there are many people that surround your home that are probably better people than you? Right? I mean, do you understand that? I, I mean, there's just this thing. I, I, you know, there are people living nearby who are kinder than you are. There are people living nearby who have better marriages than you have. There are people living nearby who are better at their jobs than you are. Right? Do you understand that there are people living nearby who are just nicer and more patient and more level-headed than you are? And do you understand that all of those people, if they've not bent the knee to Jesus, if they've not been redeemed by the gospel, that all of those people are going to hell? Do you understand that in this moment, I love the tension created in this passage when it tells us that this sea of people, the sea of people who are going to hell are devout. Right? The sea of people who are going to hell are devout. Later on, Peter says, you killed Jesus. You rejected Jesus. You missed Jesus. So you have this tension between extraordinarily nice people who are extraordinarily damned. They're damned good people. Friends, that should stir our hearts. The simple fact of the matter is, is that this morning as we gather in this church, we are surrounded by homes full of people who would outshine us in all sorts of ways. They may indeed be, in the raw material of, of, of personality, better people. Right? But they're lost. Later on in Acts chapter 4, Peter says to some more of these good people, there is no name, no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. So this is this moment that is repeated over and over again in Scripture where God's people are surrounded by not God's people, right? And God's people are not necessarily better. God's people don't necessarily have everything figured out. God's people are saved. God's people have been introduced to the truth about Jesus Christ. And they're living a life based on grace. And as they live this surrounded life, not because they're special in any kind of way that they can boast in their own merit, but as they live in this sort of surrounded environment, their heart is stirred for those who don't know Jesus. And they want those who don't know Jesus to know Jesus. As I said last week, it is abnormal, it's anti-natural to not be stirred by hell. To not be stirred with compassion for those who are going there. It is is a symptom, let me play doctor for a minute, this is a symptom of a broken heart. A a, a non-functioning spirituality that doesn't feel compassion For those who are going in hell, this is a symptom of a spiritual disease. And so you have these 120 people surrounded by this sea of lostness. That's the first thing we see here. 
We know that Jesus is moved by this. We know that this was a very picture of Jesus who came into a world of brokenness, who came in as the sole light into a world of darkness and was repeatedly moved to compassion even for those who persecuted him. The church is surrounded by the lost, and that ought to bother you. It ought to bother you that there are so many people today in this neighborhood who don't know Christ. It ought to bother you that there are so many people who haven't even had the chance to reject the clear gospel of Jesus Christ because they've never been in, in a gospel family before. They've never seen it. Never, they've never seen it. Second point. That which is inward flows outward. That which is inward flows outward. What we see here is something happening inside the body that flows to the outside of the body. This is just a simple biblical principle. The inward flows to the outward, right? Jesus says in other places that whatever's in your heart will come out eventually out of your mouth, right? Whether that's good stuff or bad stuff. And what we see in this case is a corporate inward thing, a, a, a thing that the Spirit is doing in the church that flows to the outside of the church. Evangelism, sharing the gospel with others, is simply the spilling over of the Spirit's work in the body. It is the spilling over of the Spirit's work in the body. You see that here? They are, uh, they're gathered in prayer. This, the tongues of fire appear. The wind comes in. Verse 4, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What's happening right now is this inner, internal, corporate dialogue. This is a conversation happening in the church. Now, that conversation is about to overflow onto the streets. Friends, we can't export what we don't have. We can't export what we don't have. What you'll see here is that these believers are speaking to one another with Holy Spirit-enabled speech, and then it overflows onto the streets. It overflows into the streets. So let, me, let me propose this. Do you speak to other believers with boldness? I don't think so. Not enough. Do you actively communicate and demonstrate concern for the souls of those you attend church with? Are you getting up in people's business in a loving, compassionate Holy Spirit-filled kind of way. Because if that's not happening, then you certainly won't see any overflow outside the church, right? If you're not going out of your way to get into the lives of those you go to church with, if you're not going out of your way to cross the threshold from small talk into spiritual conversation with those that you go to church with, with those you've promised to do this very thing, by the way, in the membership covenant. If you're not doing this in the body, you most certainly will never find yourself doing this outside the body. This little pattern we see in this moment, and I'm unfolding it. I don't think I'm stretching it. I think I'm just unfolding the implications of what we see in this moment, is that the Holy Spirit does a work in the church, and that that work involves speaking to one another, and that that speaking to one another becomes the pattern for how they speak to the world. So, friends, I, I'm, I'm, 
father of three teenagers. Well, not really teenagers. A couple of them are 20. But, you know, it's so strange. Like, I used to wipe their rear ends. And now I'm afraid to talk to them about the personal and very important stuff in their life. But I want to tell you just like, just, 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 just this is where I'm at. So if I'm afraid to ask my daughter where she is in her physical relationship with her soon-to-be fiancé, if I'm afraid to ask her that, then that's simply what? A cowardice that will unfold in my relationship with everyone else. Guys, if, if I'm afraid to pray with my wife, that cowardice will unfold in the rest of my relationship. So, so here's the, the heart of the matter. Someone asked Victor a couple weeks ago, what do you think a corporate sin is? Chris has said the word corporate sin. What is a corporate sin? And Victor said, it's a sin that a whole group of people don't see until you bring it up and then they freak out. <laughs> so what if the corporate sin is niceness? What if the corporate sin is a fear of crossing the threshold from small talk into spirituality? And what if, as a result of that, you've had people deeply ingrained in hidden sin for years? And what if you didn't pursue them? What if you didn't cross the line? What if you didn't ask the hard questions? Well, if you didn't do that, that same pattern will be expected to show up in your neighborhood and in your work and elsewhere. If you can't pursue your brothers and sisters, even when they don't ask for it, then you most certainly will not pursue those who don't know Christ. So, for instance, say you go to some church with someone for years. You've known them for years. And it's evident to everyone in private conversation that in their marriage, there's a deep inversion of biblical authority. And you see it. And many of the other brothers and sisters see it. And no one says anything. Do you love them? Suppose you, you go to church with someone for a long time who's just pretty obviously a flake. There's a lot of yes saying and a lot of no doing. And you see this behavioral pattern, because you go to church with them for years, and you see this behavioral pattern of flakiness. Do you, do you talk to them? Do you press in? Do you try to help them with that? If not, did you love them? Suppose you go to church with a guy who's uh, been a regular feature of your church, of your community group for years, and he's pretty obviously got an anti-authority streak that's really showing up repeatedly. There seems to be a lot of talk about his opinion, a lot of, a lot of talk perhaps about leadership. And when a group of friends that are talking about this guy know, like this guy, man, like we love him, but he's got this problem with authority. Did you talk to him about this? Did you seek him out with the power of the Holy Spirit and seek to love him by speaking to him about his sin. Suppose you've got a, a, a situation where the children are ob pretty obviously in charge of a home. 
And this is your brother and sister in Christ, and you love them, but it's pretty clear the, the children are in charge. Do you just talk about that when you go home to, to, to those that you know won't be upset or offended? Or do you seek out people in their brokenness, press in with steadfast love and boldness and say, I'm seeing this. I know that's not going to feel good for me to point this out. I'm seeing this. I'm also seeing a savior. Let me talk to you about both. How can I help you? Suppose you go to church with someone for years who thinks it's appropriate, okay, to simply leave church without offering any reason. Do you love them? What does, what does bold, Holy Spirit-filled speech look like in that case? Because if we can't learn to cross the threshold from small talk into the deep spiritual things with our own brothers and sisters in Christ, nothing will be exported out into the world. I just want you to think about this. How many times have you had conversations with your brothers and sisters about entirely non-eternal, mundane things, politics, sports, their home, their vacation plans, and failed to pursue their souls? Failed to speak to them in the deeper places of life? Failed to cross the threshold into difficult conversations? Because let's be honest... You just don't love them enough to get messy. It would be entirely inconvenient to your own life to enter into a conversation with someone else in which they may be offended, right? In which they may point out your sin, in which you would have to be open and honest and humble. It's difficult. But whatever is happening in our relationship, in our speech, in our love here, is all we can export out there. That's what we have to export. So we must see in this text and in many other texts that there is that faithfulness and fruitfulness involve the learning to cross the threshold from small talk to soul talk. Learning to initiate a hard conversation. And this is key. Learning how to initiate a hard conversation without being invited. And doing so with grace and truth. And if we can't practice that on one another, then we have no capacity to do that in the world. Number three. Much of the internal work of the Spirit only makes sense when it is shared. Much of the internal work of the Spirit only makes sense when it is shared. So a lot of what the Spirit is doing in your life and what the Spirit is doing in our church will only make sense once it gets out of our life and out of the church and into the streets. Look with me again at, let's say, verse 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, as best as I can understand, these tongues are not the ecstatic languages spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12. Um, the, I think the authority, the theological authority on, on uh, a, a right use of charismatic gifts would say the same thing. Sam Storms, he says, this is, these are languages. 
this isn't the ecstatic kind of worship or prayer language that you may think of that, that does appear later in Scripture and is endorsed later in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, for instance. What's happening here is that, now picture this, 120 people in a room, as the Spirit is giving them utterance, they're speaking in other languages. They're speaking in Phoenician, right? They're, they're speaking in other languages. Do they know these languages? No, they don't know these languages. The whole idea is, is that they are be giving this missionary gift in which they're allowed to communicate the gospel uh, to the world uh, in, in a language that they understand. And we see as this progresses that, that the people who hear these languages, they hear them, they're not believers in Jesus. They're hearing the gospel. So they're not receiving some kind of interpretation gift from the Holy Spirit that allows them to understand just generalized tongues. No, they're hearing their, they're hearing their language. That's because the disciples are speaking their language. Now, this upper room was, you know, seven layers of weird already. You know, there's just <laughs> there's a lot of strangeness going on here. There's tongues of fire. There's wind, you know. But, but there's this, this thing that's happening <laughs> where the people of God are speaking in other languages. And it's sort of like, what, it, <laughs> what is this? What, what is this about? What is this for? And only when it spilled over onto the streets did they understand what it was for. There are so many things in your life that are confusing to you that have a perfectly beautiful explanation when you share it with the world. There are so many uh, inconveniences and obstacles in our church, so many weird things. We are like, what is going on here? Why is this happening? Why, why is God doing this? And if we remain hermetically sealed, we'll never know. Because as, just as in this case, so much of what God is doing in your life is not about you, ultimately. Remember that God loves you. He just doesn't love only you. He will take you through situations in life for the purpose of blessing other people. So that a church doesn't really understand what's happening here without overflow into the world. This stuff doesn't make as clear a sense. Last week we had Natalie and Seku Kelsey here. They, uh, the last people who came to faith in Jesus at my last church. And you heard their story, their testimony, uh, if you were here last week. And if you weren't, it's on Basecamp. We're not going to post it publicly. I haven't heard back from them about whether they want to do that or not. And I want to hear that from them. But uh, you heard this testimony, and, and, and I, I just I didn't want that testimony to have any smell of being, look what we did. And I wanted that testimony to be like, look what Jesus did. But I remember driving home about a month before I met them, driving home from Minnesota, and I'm looking out at this just desolate, uh, in I, northern Iowa, the desolation that is northern Iowa, you know, just, it was like the permafrost, you know, there's just a, ugh. Anyway, it's gray and gross, and I'm talking to another guy, and I'm saying, you know, you know, I am just, I just want to see someone saved. I just want to see someone come to know Jesus. And I feel like we're just at this impasse, and I don't know what to do. And he says, like, this is actually what he said, you should fast. I'm like, oh, okay? It's like, you should fast for seven days. Okay. 
I'm with you. Why, why aren't we saying we right now? <laughs> you know, why is it me? You know, I mean, I think it's, you know, you go to the highest body fat percentage and appoint that person. Uh, they're going to suffer the least. Anyway, so, so, so this, this, this thing just came out. It was, you know, you should fast. And it's like, well, can we fast? Can a bunch of us fast? It's like, okay, I'll do it with you. And so a number of us prayed and fasted for uh, seven days and would get together every night on a conference call. And we would talk about how our day went and so on and so forth. We would pray together. And then the next day and the next day and the next day. Totally corporate ministry. Totally corporate prayer. Totally, totally connected in that purpose. I didn't understand until last week that that preceded the conversion of Seku by less than a month. I, or not the conversion, but our meeting them by less than a month. I did not connect those things until last week that this period of corporate prayer and fasting God used in whatever way that God uses our efforts, God used to lead these two people to Jesus. So only when the things that are happening inside flow outside, do we really have perspective and clarity about what's going on? There are many things that God's doing in your life that will fall into perfect perspective or at least much more perspective once you start living life amongst those who don't know Jesus for with those who don't know Jesus. You know, this idea of, of what's happening inside overflowing and what's happening outside is sort of behind what we're doing with the fall fiesta coming up next month on October 20th. Um, this is something that, that, Ange and Victor did uh, two years ago at our church in, in Belleville, and it was this great, beautiful kind of block party feel. You know, we have all sorts of cool things gonna, are going to happen. We've got the, the we've got a big meal planned. We've got the bouncy house. We've got a movie showing. We've got, you know, games and pinatas and face painting and so on and so forth. And it's really just this effort to let what's actually happening on the inside of our church overflow to the outside because the quintessential central nugget of what's happening on the inside of us is fiesta it is joy it's 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 a celebration and we've got so many obstacles to overcome and so many sins to repent of but when you boil it all down and you look at the basic central nugget of the whole thing it's shalom it's joy peace rest, togetherness, unity, encouragement, and we want that to flow on the outside. And so this is just one of those examples, one of those opportunities where you can say, you know, let's, let's as a church get together and let's just throw a party. That seems to be one of the most biblical things you can do is throw a party with your church. I'm actually being quite serious. Like one of the most biblical things a church can do is throw a party. And we should be good at it. We should get used to it. We should do it so frequently that we've just, we've got the administrative pieces down. We should be good at throwing parties and inviting the world in. And so October 20th, we're going to do that very thing. We're going to have this party in the parking lot. And we're doing our best to invite everyone in the neighborhood through social media. And we'll be doing direct mail uh, this week. We, would, we need everybody here to be there. We need all hands on deck, especially if you speak Spanish. But if you don't, you'll be fine. It's not like, it's not like there are only going to be Spanish-speaking people there. We anticipate there will be some. We want to get together and just have a good day 
celebrating God's goodness to us in full view of the neighborhood that the Lord has placed us in. So there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Um, there's a base camp where this, a lot of this is being planned out. and You'll hear more about it every week. But please, hear what I just said, October 20th. We need you there. There's a million things to do. We want to do a good party, not a lame party. We've all been to lame parties. We don't, that doesn't show the gospel. Lame parties don't show Jesus. Good parties show Jesus. So, so please help us throw a good party, a good fall fiesta. Point number four. If the world isn't confused, we're not doing it right. If the world isn't confused, we're not doing it right. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I think don't let the lack of clarity in your communication. Some of you are better speakers than others. Some of you are better communicators than others. Some of you, it's a very long trip through the woods to get to the point, and others, it's quick. God made you that way. Stop worrying about it. Don't, don't, seriously, stop worrying about being the most clear communicator of the gospel in the history of the world. You know, last week when we had Seku and Natalie share... They're new Christians. They're going to be multiple places in their understanding of things that will need to be adjusted theologically over time. There's not a, a ton of absolute clarity in, in many of the ways that they share the gospel with the, their neighbors and with their friends. It, it's okay. It's okay. If people aren't confused, you're not doing it right. Because what God is doing is so far deeper and more above what our brains can conceive, that confusion is often a great sign that God is at work. If you have to bumble through your testimony, or, or even if you have these glaring hypocrisies in your life, it's okay. It's okay. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about what he's done for you. Yes, you will probably not. You will probably be confusing. They will probably be confused. The Bible says that the natural mind cannot comprehend the things of God. In this particular case, these believers are accidentally, quite accidentally, making such a show of it. Right? The, the speech is overflowing onto the streets. It's sort of like band practice, you know, with the windows open. And everybody's hearing it, but they're just entirely confused because it doesn't fit a neat category. You know, so often as we've invited people into our lives who are not followers of Jesus, the whole thing confuses them. The whole thing just confuses them. They look and they have all of these stereotypes and expectations, and then they live with us for a week or two. It's like, man, he doesn't fit a lot of the expectations I thought he would have, and his wife's even more outside the box. Uh, the stereotypes get broken. And in that confusion, the truth of the gospel can enter. We're supposed to be confusing people to the world. The world's supposed to scratch their heads at us. If it all makes sense, it ain't God. So if you're not confusing them, you're not doing it right. That's number four. Number five, if you aren't being criticized and misunderstood, you're not doing it right. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others mocked and said, they are filled with new wine. Right? That's, that's, if you're not being misunderstood, criticized, you're not doing it right. You're so fearful of sharing the gospel with someone or, or even, friends, just openly talking to another believer about their sin. Let me tell you something. I, I do that for a living. You're going to get misunderstood and you're going to get criticized. Like, that's just part of the deal. But neither of those things are evidences of failure. And I just want to say one thing just as an aside. You know, failure, as you know it, is entirely compatible with God's definition of success. Failure, as you know it, is entirely compatible with God's definition of success. Fatalism is not. Losing, let me say it another way with, with more alliteration, losing, losing is entirely compatible with God's definition of winning. Laziness is not. So it's okay to be confused. It's okay to be criticized. In fact, those are good evidences that God is at work. The confusion that is, is, uh, is spun off from God working is all over the Bible, right? And the criticism of Jesus appearing, people criticizing Jesus, oh, maybe I'm onto something. If people are confused and critical, maybe I'm onto something. Number six, you must, you must, you must become a prophet. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men shall, dream, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female spirits, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There's a really cool Old Testament connection I'm not going to get to this week. Come back next week. They shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is saying that it was God's intention to liberate the earth from its it's sin-induced fruitlessness to liberate the earth by releasing his spirit on his people and that his people would pour forth God-honoring speech. Sometimes weird. Sometimes misunderstood. Pour forth God-honoring speech and that this moment in which the Holy Spirit is given to all believers through this 121st, is the, is the outflow of God's plan to turn all his people into prophets. Now, I want to say one thing. I think this probably goes without saying. But if you are saying today, gosh, I, that's the one thing I'm not, Chris. That's the one thing I'm not. Like, I'm not a prophet. I'm not okay being uh, 
uh, initiating in that way. I'm not okay being direct. I'm just not a prophet. Let me tell you something. Please, please believe me. You're going to make the best prophet. Because there's some people here who are like, that's right. (laughs) We need more prophets. You're going to be the worst prophets. Those of you are saying, that's just not me. Like to be that direct and bold and be willing to be misunderstood and to initiate, to step into people's situations and, and to just be willing to be weird. That's not me, friends. Let me just tell you something. Please, please, be, please try. There will be so much fruit from you stepping into this weakness. You'll make the very best prophets. Being a prophet means being willing to be misunderstood. It means being bold. It means being wearing your heart on your sleeve. It means bleeding with compassion, aching in intercession. It means being misunderstood in your culture. It means being persecuted. And God uses the prophetic voice to such great effect especially when a culture is drunk on niceness. And we are drunk on niceness. Did you know that we can go to the water supplies around the United States and we can, we can do samples and we can find all sorts of antidepressants and all sorts of anti-anxiety drugs in the water supply? They're that pervasive that they're actually, you know, before filtration, they're actually in the water supply. Friends, our culture is drunk. It is inebriated. It is high on feeling okay. And we've got to speak as prophets to a world drunk on niceness. And you, friends, you, being merely nice to your neighbors one more year is like handing a drug addict on the street a $20 bill. You're not helping them. You're helping you. You're helping you feel better. You're helping you move along to the next thing. Please understand it is God's will with God's spirit that he do a work in you that overflows in prophetic love, prophetic boldness, prophetic authority. That those of you who are the most scared to death of what I'm saying right now, you will be great at this. You'll be great at this. This is not all the personality junk that's in the way that someone like me has to contend with. Where, you know, a decent portion of it's always sin. I wonder if you've ever thought, uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 10, he says, uh, well, in verse uh, 12, rather, he says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And I wonder if you've ever read that and you've thought, I don't think I'm persecuted. And maybe, <laughs> you've done like I've done, in order to feel good about yourself, you've really, 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 really watered down the definition of persecuted. So you'd be like, well, there was that one person who like, didn't, didn't like me for a month. Got some serious shade from that. I I don't think the solution to that verse is to water down the word persecuted. 
I think the solution is to be open to questioning whether or not I'm living a godly life. Paul gives a definition of what he means by godly life in the verses that precede it. In verse 10, he says, uh, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. What's Paul's aim in life? My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Guys, Paul is using the term godly life as shorthand for a life on mission. For a life in which he is following Jesus into the world. He's, he's, he's getting persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, not because he homeschooled his kids and voted Republican. but because he's telling these devout people that they're going to hell without Jesus. He, for Paul, which I think we should listen to him, he's an apostle, you know. Uh, For Paul, godly life is synonymous with a missional life. A life spent pursuing others for the praise of God, applying the gospel both inwardly and outwardly. That life is a godly life. And that life will lead to persecution. Prophetic persecution. Not doing those things. No doing those things. No godly. No godly. No evangelism. No godly. No mission. No godly. No pressing out. No godly. But all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. As a whole, not just here but everywhere, the people of God are lacking a prophetic edge to their life. And I want to end by saying, those of you who think, amen, you just go home and take a nap. Those of you that are like totally agreeing with me on that, just, okay, thank you. Go home and take a nap. Those of you who are scared to death of this, my goodness, you don't understand the extraordinary potential that is locked up inside those fears. Because when you, oh kind-hearted soul, decide that you're going to trust the Holy Spirit, And you're going to step into what feels like thin air and say, I love you, but you need Jesus. And I'm sorry for being too nice to you for years because I wasn't loving you. I wasn't. I was loving myself. I was loving this little life I've created for myself, knowing that if I started talking to people about their sin, it would be like opening all the doors to my house and letting all of the chaos in. And I was busy creating my own kingdom rather than living for the kingdom of God. And so I'm sorry. 
I want to say some hard things to you, but I hope you know that all those years I was nice to you is because I do love you. I, I thought I was loving you, and I'm trying to love you now. My goodness, when God in his spirit empowers not the, not the natural-born jerks like me, but the nice people, when he empowers the nice people with boldness, amazing things happen. Let me pray.